In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. That's Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in the hours after Russia invaded his country almost two years ago, declaring on social media that he would not flee the capital city. It was a remarkable video and a sign of what was to come. As the war has dragged on, Zelensky has been the face of Ukraine at home and also abroad, making stirring speeches in places like Canada's parliament, thanking Canadians for their support. Another extremely important fact about you is that you never, never ever make a political bet on hatred and enmity. And you are always on the bright side of history. Thank you. Simon Schuster has had unprecedented access to Zelensky over the course of the war, traveling with the leader from his bunker to the front lines of the conflict and many places in between. Simon Schuster is a journalist with Time magazine. His new book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. Simon Schuster, hello. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. What was Vladimir Zelensky like when you first met him? When I first met him, it was backstage of uh, his comedy show while he was running for president. Um, and he was a very, as you might expect, funny, easygoing, relaxed guy, very optimistic, um, somewhat naive about uh, how easy or hard it would be to manage the the many political and geopolitical challenges that Ukraine faced at the time. He was just a lot of fun to be around. And, and I, I spent time with his friends as well backstage of the show and uh, his fellow comedians who performed with him. Uh, some of them then transitioned with him into the office of the president, where life became a lot less fun and, and a lot more difficult. Why do you think he wanted to run for president? I mean, his comedy was always political, but but what changed for him? I think he was uh, deeply frustrated, as were a lot of Ukrainians, with the leadership they had had for many years, with the kind of constant cycle of these political clans and oligarchs who seemed to always change places in the leadership positions in Ukraine, like a kind of carousel, uh, without ever bringing any any substantial change to the country, without um, dislodging the systems of corruption that were pervasive um, in Ukraine for many years. And, you know, he wanted to change. Uh, I think he also thought, because of his abundant confidence um, in himself, uh, that he could do a better job mm. than, than all the professional politicians. And the last thing I'd say on that point is just that he had reached the peak of his abilities as an entertainer in Ukraine. He was already the country's most famous comedian, one of the most famous movie stars. There was nowhere really to go for him in that professional trajectory. And I think he did want a new challenge. He believed that leadership would not force him to change. And maybe this speaks to the naivety that, that you mentioned earlier. What was he afraid of? At the time, when, when he was just... Uh, Running for office and, and early in his administration, he didn't seem to be afraid of anything. Um, when I 
asked him the questions of, well, what do you plan to do? How do you plan to uh, you know, deal with uh, Donald Trump, who was then in the White House? How do you plan to deal with Putin, uh, who was already then a, a massive threat to Ukraine and its sovereignty? He said things like, don't worry, Simon, we'll figure it out. It'll be okay. Um, you know, these kinds of reassuring messages, uh, reassuring, but rather vague. Um, so I don't think he was he was afraid of much. Um, he thought he could really kind of manage the problems that uh, were facing Ukraine at the time. What did what did he not want to become? I mean, when he says that he didn't want to change because he he had I mean, this came out through his comedy as well, sort of a disdain for for the average politician, right? Yeah, he didn't want to become a politician. He he didn't want to lose himself, as he put it, and that meant really losing touch with the person he had been that he that his experience as an entertainer, a comedian, had forged. Um, he thought that the skills that he had developed in the world of show business were uh, sufficient to manage the role of the presidency, and he promised the people of Ukraine that he would not be a politician. He would not engage in politics as usual. Uh, that he was bringing new approaches, new blood, and a fresh face to the, the political leadership. So that is what he wanted to avoid becoming, a kind of traditional politician. A I fresh, think he's been pretty successful at well, that. Well, a fresh face, but also a blank space in some ways, right? Like you say that he took this approach of being a blank space. Yeah, that was, I think, more uh, devised by his, his campaign strategists and his campaign team they, uh, in looking at the uh, opinion polls and generally the, the condition of the electorate before those elections in 2019, they saw that the electorate was extremely divided on questions of uh, whether to integrate with the West or remain somehow, you know, closer to Russia, you know, on questions of language. And, and generally, you know, there, there were major issues at the time that were dividing the electorate. They decided that it would be better, smarter politically, to avoid taking firm positions and really engaging with the other candidates on the issues. He didn't, up until the, the very last stretch of the elections, participate in any debates. Um, his electoral platform was was vague. They didn't publish a detailed platform. Um, and I think the, the strategy, as one of his campaign managers explained to me, was to make him a kind of a canvas onto which voters could project their ideas of the perfect president. And they knew that in taking firm positions on very divisive issues, they would alienate one side of the political divide or the other. Mm -hmm. So they just chose not to do that. How did you see that play out before he got involved in politics. I think in part in, in relationship to his ties with Russia. I mean, he, he grew up speaking Russian, the language that he was most comfortable with uh, before the war certainly was Russian. That's not uncommon for Ukrainians. But he had close ties with Russia as well as an entertainer, right? Yeah, he had very close business ties. At a certain point, really at the peak of his financial uh, business success as, as a movie maker, about 85% of his income was coming from the Russian market. His TV shows, his films, uh, his comedy performances were in the Russian language, and his audience spanned both countries. Indeed, it spanned many countries in the former Soviet Union where Russian is spoken. So he needed Russian partners, uh, and, and he relied on the Russian audience for, for many years. I think it was only really in 2014 when Russia first took military action against Ukraine, when Putin first sent his troops to annex uh, the, the region of Crimea and begin this war in eastern Ukraine, that is when Zelensky had to draw a kind of political line and begin wrapping up his business relationships in Russia. But that's well, that, that, that's well after for what was known as, as the Orange Revolution, right? When there were thousands and thousands of people out in, in, in the streets of Ukraine. Yeah, that was in 2004, 2005. And, and at that point, Zelensky was 
deeply interested in politics. He was satirizing all the politicians and participants, the leaders of the Orange Revolution on both sides, both the pro-Western and the pro-Russian side. But he didn't take a clear political position. He remained skeptical and distant from all the political forces. He made fun of all of them. I think, yeah, again, it was it was only about 10 years after the Orange Revolution of 2004-2005 that he took a political stand and, and his kind of political sensibilities, his political positions began coming to the fore. Do you think that that was, I mean, that that reluctance to take a stand initially or or to be clear on what your stand, his stance was, was that in part because of those business ties? I'm not saying that he was compromised by the business ties, but did they have an influence on him? For sure. Yeah. I, I don't think, you know, in talking to the, um, uh, fellow comedians and people who worked with him at that time, that was that was very clear. They, they didn't want to alienate their uh, business partners, uh, their partners in the, in the Russian movie industry and, and their audiences in Russia. How did his instincts, you write about this in the book, how did his instincts as an actor shape him and guide him as the war took hold, uh, the most recent uh, uh, advance in the war two years ago? I mean, that, that's why I chose to call the book The Showman, because I, I think that has been his superpower, both in entering politics in 2019 and in leading his country into war in 2022. So he has used his abilities uh, as a showman, as an entertainer, to really grab and hold the world's attention in a way that a more traditional politician, I don't think, would have managed to do. He is a master of social media. He understands television very well. He understands the power of persuasion and what it takes to use emotional appeals to win hearts and minds. He has used all those skills to keep us engaged in this war and, and to win us over. And, and when I say us, I, I, I mean, you know, not only our leaders, uh, our elected representatives, but also all of the, the people in Western democracies to, to keep all of us watching this war and engaged in it and rooting for Zelensky. That's been his goal. And, and he's done it effectively in part because he has these skills as, as a showman. Tell me about the pep talk that he gave himself shortly after the invasion. He, he described this moment of, of sort of um, trying to get a grip on what the moment demanded of him. And just, just to quote you know, his recollection, he said, uh, they're watching, meaning all of Ukraine, all of the world, everyone is watching you now. You are a symbol, meaning a symbol of the state, a symbol of Ukraine and its defiance. Uh, you need to act the way a head of state must act. This is what kind he told himself. That's what he told himself, yeah. And, and that kind of, uh, as, I, as I write, pep talk that he gave himself in the early hours of the invasion was, um, in my understanding, him stepping into the role of a wartime leader, a position that demanded that he change into something quite fundamentally new. He had to manage the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. Um, I think anyone thrust into that position would have to quite quickly adapt to a new persona. And I do think that his uh, abilities from his past life as an actor gave him the mental flexibility and agility that, that helped him do that so quickly without really freezing, without being paralyzed by the, the scale of the threats that he faced that day. Two years into the war, how do most Ukrainians see him, do you think? Opinions are pretty divided. You know, if, if you look at the start of the invasion, we're talking March 2022 or so, the polls, I remember, were uh, close to 90 percent approval. I think some of them were above 90 percent. Uh, now we're talking about in, in the range of 60 to 70 percent, depending on the polls you look at. So it's still a, a, an enormous amount of, of support and popularity and trust among the population, but it is declining. Uh, I think that's natural enough uh, after two years of such an intense and horrific war. 
Um, but I, I think generally Ukrainians do credit him and acknowledge his role in saving the country in in being that symbol that he that he talked to himself about in, in the first day of the invasion, being a symbol of Ukraine in the West, in, in the world, being its representative and, and being that kind of beacon that people in Ukraine and outside Ukraine look to uh, for a sign that Ukraine fights on, Ukraine is defiant, Ukraine continues to resist. You know, he's really embodied that. And, and Ukrainians that I talk to, even if they have problems with some of his decisions, even if they question his failure to adequately prepare for the invasion, they do give him a lot of credit for the, the role he's played as an advocate and as a diplomat and as a symbol. How fair is that criticism, do you think, that he did not prepare adequately for the invasion? I want to ask you about Valery Zelushny in a minute, the, the, mm -hmm. the top military commander that he just fired. But one of the, the criticisms that has been directed at Zelensky is that he didn't listen to some of the people around him and, and take the threats of an invasion, threats that were coming from from the United States and elsewhere, didn't take them seriously enough. Well, first, I want to admit that I also, you know, I've, I'd been writing about Russia and Ukraine for about 15 years by the time the invasion started. I also did not expect Putin to take such a catastrophic decision. So I certainly was was not prepared or expecting Kiev to come under attack, the tanks to roll across the border. These things seemed far-fetched uh, and, and just improbable. And I think Zelensky also had a hard time believing that in the 21st century, Putin would start a war on this scale. He also was presented, you know, unlike me, he was presented with a range of intelligence from the U.S. intelligence services who were predicting the most aggressive kind of invasion from three directions intending to capture the entire country, unseat Zelensky's government, kill or capture him. And then he was also looking at the intelligence and intelligence analysis from European countries, Germany, France, and from the Ukrainian intelligence services. So he was seeing all of this. The Europeans and the Ukrainians had a less stark interpretation of what the Russians were doing, and they were predicting as their kind of baseline scenario an attack from the east, where there had already been a long-simmering war over these separatist regions in eastern Ukraine, mm. but not this wholesale attack from the north, south, and east at the same time with bombardment of Ukrainian cities from all directions. So Zelensky essentially chose to believe the milder scenario as, as the most likely one. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to go back to the word that you used earlier, which is naive. Was he naive in that? And part of it is about how he thought of, of Vladimir Putin. You told the story of how he wished in some ways that he could have taken Putin to the site of the massacre at Bucha, the town where uh, a slaughter unfolded. And that if Putin saw that, perhaps that might have changed him and that might lead him to the, the negotiating table. Was he naive when he thought of Vladimir Putin? I, I think... Um... He was he was confident in his abilities, and this goes back to his first negotiations with Putin uh, in 2019, at the end of 2019. 
he was confident in his abilities to reach Putin, to somehow reason with him, to find some humanity or pragmatism in Putin that Zelensky could could use in a negotiation to turn the Russian position somehow in Ukraine's favor. Uh, that was naive. People told him that that he shouldn't expect Putin to have any such qualities that, that would make him open to honest negotiations with Ukraine. Uh, I know American diplomats also warned him, uh, as one of them put it, not to get sucked in to a negotiation with Putin because he, he he just couldn't be reasoned with. But Zelensky wanted to try, and he spent a couple of years trying very hard before the invasion, in the beginning of his presidency, trying to reach an agreement and understanding with Putin that could forestall uh, a war on any scale. Uh, and then, indeed, uh, once the invasion was underway, he was still hopeful that mm. he could sit down across from Putin at the negotiating table and come to terms that were not um, humiliating for Ukraine. Uh, was that naive? Maybe. That's one way to put it. I, I think it also speaks to, to Zelensky's um, supremely high confidence in his own abilities as a communicator. One of those people who strongly disagreed with that approach was Valery Zeluzhny, who was Ukraine's top military commander. Uh, he was recently fired by Zelensky. They'd had a rocky relationship for years, right? Uh, yes. They, um, I wouldn't say for years, but uh, before General Zeluzhny was dismissed, he uh, had been clashing behind the scenes with President Zelensky over a variety of issues, you know, in, including issues of military strategy related to uh, when it was appropriate to attack, where along the front lines to attack the Russians, how to use limited military resources to, to fight back. These are natural disagreements, um, and they were unfolding kind of away from the public eye. Be because I was I was there and speaking to members of both of their teams, at, at the time, I, I was aware of these conflicts going on. But at a certain point, they kind of reached a level of intensity, and they became so distracting that something had to give. And I think that is why the president ultimately uh, dismissed the general. Um, but it took a long time. Mm -hmm. those, those disagreements, to put it mildly, um, were unfolding for more than a year before Zelensky finally made that decision. They tangled in part because Zeluzhny had said that the war was at a stalemate and, and Zelensky and others had pushed back strongly on that. How was he seen? How was the general seen by those who were fighting the war, those on the front lines? He's as almost godlike huh. in his status there among the rank and file. I mean, he is absolutely adored, revered as, as a hero, as a savior of the country. And I think that doesn't only go for uh, the military personnel, but generally across Ukraine, he is um, absolutely iconic in his in his status as a, as a national savior and, and as, a, as a commander. Is it problematic when there are two heroes in a war? <laughs> Um, this reminds me of a conversation I had with um, a journalist in Ukraine. She's the editor of, of an outlet called Ukrainska Pravda, which is the leading online news news outlet there. And her reporters were among the first, I think, to really publicize the conflict between the president and, and his top general. Uh, and she said she'd gotten a lot of pushback from the office of the president. And one thing she told me is they act like there can only be one hero, and that's Zelensky, no one else. So I think her experience is, is quite illustrative there that, uh, indeed, I think the, the president's team seemed to feel that in order for their diplomatic efforts to be successful and in order to maintain the, the level of support, Zelensky needed to be the, the undisputed figure in the role of the, the kind of national symbol, mm. right? He needed to be the face of, of the country and its war and its resistance against Russia. That led to, how, to some degree in terms of how he treated the Ukrainian media, right? What was his relationship or what is really? his relationship like with the Ukrainian media, particularly media that might be doing the job of media and being skeptical about what politicians say? 
Well, his his relationship with the media was contentious from early on in his presidency. The media environment in Ukraine generally, after its independence in 1991, a really vibrant and um, rich media environment developed, uh, very much in contrast to Russia, where the state basically controls all media. In Ukraine, that was not the case. So as soon as Zelensky took office, he faced withering criticism from the media, and he often pushed back, and, and they had a very contentious relationship. I, I think, uh, you know, he, he blamed the media for for destabilizing the country, as he once put it. Once the invasion was underway, martial law was declared. And under the terms of martial law in Ukraine, legally, the, the office of the president, the, the head of state and, and his, his administration, they have a control of the airwaves. He is absolutely not shy about um, instrumentalizing the media uh, during the war, because he says now is not the time to have this messy kind of divisive media environment. Ukraine needs to stay united. Uh, and as he once put it, information is a weapon. And at a time of war, you need to point that weapon in the direction of the enemy and not at one's own head. What would Zelensky, the political satirist, make of that, do you think? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I, I, I wonder that sometimes. Yeah, it's uh, these are different characters. And I think he would be critical of that. Zelensky, the satirist, made fun of all politicians. It, it didn't matter. Um, but your question reminds me of, of an interesting conversation I had with the first lady who was a writer on Zelensky's TV shows and a writer for his comedy. Uh, and when he became the president, there was an interesting dynamic between his old comedy troupe, which continued to put out these satirical shows, uh, making fun of politicians. And the first lady was disappointed with how they pulled punches and they were kind of soft on Zelensky. They didn't want to make fun of their old friend uh, in the same ways that they had with previous presidents of Ukraine. Uh, and they kind of held back. And she criticized them for that. She said, no, you shouldn't hold back. You know, we need to maintain our relationship uh, with the public as a satirical group that always tells the truth about politics, that always pushes back, that always hits those sensitive nerves of the politicians in our jokes. Um, but it was an interesting dynamic where they couldn't really overcome their loyalty to their old friend in satirizing him as viciously as they satirized previous presidents. Mm. I mean, as the war unfolded, and particularly at the beginning when he put out that video uh, of, of he and, and fellow leaders kind of still in, in Kiev saying, we're here, you know, and they weren't leaving anywhere, people drew a line between him and, and Winston Churchill. But in the book, you talk about how he saw a closer ally in, in Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, that, that came up uh, in one of our interviews when actually I brought up the, the, the comparisons to Churchill, which were pretty constant. He didn't seem to appreciate the comparisons to Churchill very much. Uh, Churchill famously uh, was a supporter of the British Empire and arguably an imperialist. And, and Zelensky sees his war as an anti-imperialist war. And he, in response to, to the, this, this remark of mine about Churchill, he brought up Charlie Chaplin. And he said, look, in history, there were also these artists. There were these figures who used the power of their art, the power of the word, the power of their performances to fight against fascism. I mean, what did Charlie Chaplin do? He made fun of Hitler during the Holocaust. And Zelensky made the point, as he put it, that sometimes the influence of these artists was stronger than artillery. And, and that really made the point to me, the kind of influence, the kind of power that Zelensky sees himself as having and that he strives for, you know, not as some kind of military commander uh, in uniform moving battalions around on a map, but as, as a master communicator, mm. as someone who uses the power of the word and wages the information war through his charisma, through his messaging, through television, through social media and so on. Just before I let you go, I mean, how addictive is that power? He has put off presidential elections before because of the war. The elections are due to come up soon. Um, you mm -hmm. write that you worry 
about what Ukraine would look like under his leadership after the war. What specifically are, are you worried about? I, I worry about the historical precedence of you know how often or how rarely leaders are able to part with uh, absolute power. Do you think he's becoming an autocrat? This is something that Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of or the mayor of uh, of Kiev, has said. I mean, they're political right, rivals, yeah. but but there's, yeah. you wonder whether there's something in that. Yeah, and, and I've heard the same notes of concern from Ukrainian journalists, from other politicians in Ukraine, from businessmen. You know, I, I think these are reasonable concerns. I can't really point to something that, that Zelensky has done. I wouldn't say that there's a, a pattern of behavior that suggests he is he has autocratic tendencies. But I think these are questions that, that the world, and especially Ukrainians, need to watch very carefully because they are fighting for their democracy. And it would be a horrible shame if, at the end of the war, they lose some of those democratic values and democratic institutions that they've they've fought so hard to maintain. Um, I don't think Zelensky intends to do that. When I when I talk to him about these things, he says it's very simple. We win the war, we lift martial law, and we go back to democracy as normal. But uh, history shows that that those transitions tend to be difficult. They tend to be fraught, and and I think it'll be a major test not only for Ukraine as as a nation and as a democracy, but also for Zelensky as a person to have the maturity and the wisdom to say. We've won the war, and now I will give back the extraordinary powers that, that martial law bestows on the president. When did you last speak we'll, with him? We'll see. I spoke to him um, uh, in October of 2023. We traveled together to uh, Odessa in the south. How do you think his morale is now, two years into this this grinding war that shows no real signs of, of, of ending? Uh, it's stronger than one might expect after the, the challenges and the stress and the exhausting schedule he keeps. I'd say he's still extremely confident in Ukraine's ability to win. He believes it in public and private. He does not betray signs of kind of defeatism of any kind. On the contrary, he always tries to boost the flagging morale among his uh, soldiers, among the population. I think in contrast to some of the people around him, he, he has maintained a, a very high level of confidence in himself and in Ukraine's ability to win. This is a fascinating book. It is a, a nuanced and, and really complicated portrayal of, of Vladimir Zelensky. Simon Schuster, thank you very much. Thank you. Simon Schuster is a journalist with Time Magazine. That new book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.